the James Webb Space Telescope so far is challenging many of the fine details of the Big Bang model. And I'm confident all of the, all of the textbooks will be rewritten on this subject. The following program is made possible by the friends and partners of Creation Today. So did the Big Bang ever happen? We just spent $10 billion on the new James Webb Space Telescope, and some say it's making us question everything we know about the origin of the universe. Welcome to the Creation Today Show, where we bring together interviews with experts and solid Bible teaching. Your host, Eric Hovind, affirms the ultimate authority of God's Word, the truth of creation, and why it matters to you. Well, it has been in operation for several months now, so what have we learned from the James Webb Space Telescope? Hey, if you're new to the Creation Today show, we are on a mission to disciple the world one person at a time. We do that by turning stumbling blocks that keep people from seeing Jesus as the creator and the redeemer of mankind into stepping stones to help you traverse this journey that we call life. I want to give a warm welcome to those of you that are joining us live on Facebook or on YouTube. And I want to thank our podcast listeners and our television audience for being part of today's show as well. You guys are peeking into this Creation Today community for a conversation between myself, Eric Hoven, the host, and Dr. Danny Faulkner as we discuss the new discoveries of the James Webb Telescope. Uh, we might also get into Big Bang, uh, quantum physics, the meaning of life. Let's see if we can just kind of cover everything in the show. Uh, the Creation Today show is actually designed to disciple people through weekly conversations about science and scripture so that we can be all that God has called us to be here on earth. If you ever want to join the little Creation Today community that we have, we welcome you. Come on over to creationtoday.org. Hey, to my partners on here, I see you guys on here. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. I love these conversations that we get to have. Amber, you are awesome. She also does our video uh, videos for social media. Uh, Bev, great to have you on here. Cheryl, good to see you. A uh, bunch of you guys on here. Lisa, good to have you on here. Uh, PK, always good to see you. We appreciate it. I'm excited for this conversation, guys. Uh, it's, it's with Dr. Danny Faulkner. I, I don't know if you know who he is yet, but you should. He's been on the show several times to discuss flat earth versus the Bible, flat earth versus science. Uh, we've talked about starlight and time. His background as a physics and an astronomy astronomy professor uh, in the universities, and, and really his love for the hands-on sciences and his telescopes and his observatory, along with his sense of humor, make him an absolute joy to be around. You're going to love his insights into God's amazing creation. Ladies and gentlemen, go ahead and give him a hand right there where you're at, Dr. Danny Faulkner. Doc, we got any homework today? Perhaps. We'll see how it unfolds. I love it. Hey, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure to be here once again. And your home sweet home up at the Creation Museum up in Kentucky, is that right? That's correct. Northern Kentucky. We're surrounded by Ohio right here. Yeah, just outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. Oh my goodness. If you guys have not gone to the Creation Museum in Ark, excuse me, Ark Encounter, you gotta go, you gotta go check that out. Hey, Doc, I'd like to give away things on the show. And I like to give away things that uh, our guests have have accomplished. Uh it's a whole lot easier because there's more things that you guys have accomplished than I have accomplished. So hey, you've got a new book out called The Heavens, a different view. And I thought we should give away some copies of your book today. What do you think about that? 
Excellent idea. That's really the, the, the prettiest book I've done yet. I, it is. It really is. I mean, when you start going through here, it is a beautifully done, fully colored, illustrated uh, uh, book to go through. Really God's view, a biblical view of the heavens. And that ultimately is what we want to talk about today. Hey, if you guys want to be entered into the drawing, we'll give away several copies of this book. All you have to do is make a comment in the chat right now. It doesn't matter if you're a partner here with me uh, or you're watching on YouTube or watching on Facebook. Just make a comment in the chat. Here's what I want you to tell me. Tell me if you're a creationist or an evolutionist, uh, or if you mix the two together, just type in, I'm confused. Okay. Just put that in the chat right now. And the ladies over there, will pick one of you guys and we'll draw several winner winners and we'll announce you guys uh, before the end of today's show. It'll be great. Hey doc, a lot of people think um, you, you are a biblical astronomer and a lot of people think, wait a minute, that doesn't go together. You can't really believe the Bible and be an astronomer. Can you? Is that, I mean, you really do believe the Bible and you really do study the science and you do, you're not a science denier? Absolutely. You know, um, uh, David in Psalm 19 wrote, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. That's, uh, uh, David was a bit of an observer of the skies as well. So I think they're quite compatible, uh, astronomy and science in general, uh, with, with belief in, in the Bible and in creation and the Lord. Okay, well, I, I, I got to challenge you a little bit, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to let Neil deGrasse Tyson do it. He just uh, put up a video recently. If you knew nothing about science and you read, say, the Bible, the Old Testament, which in Genesis is an account of nature, that's, that's what that is. And I said to you, give me your description of the natural world based only on this. You would say the world was created in six days and that stars are just little points of light, much lesser than the sun. And in fact, they can fall out of the sky. One of the signs that yeah. the second coming is that the stars will fall out of the sky and land on earth. So to even write that means you don't know what those things are. You have no concept of what the actual universe is. So everybody who tried to make proclamations about the physical universe based on Bible passages got the wrong answer. <laughs> so what happened was when science discovers things and you want to stay religious or you want to continue to believe that the Bible is, is unerring, what you would do is you would say, well, let me go back to the Bible and reinterpret it. Then you'd say things like, oh, they didn't really mean that literally. They meant that figuratively. So this whole sort of reinterpretation of the, how figurative the poetic passages of the Bible are came after science showed that this is not how things unfolded. Is that what happened? We kept reinterpreting the Bible based on the new science that we discovered. And it's like, oops, you know, uh, okay. He's like, look, if you just go with the Bible and you ignore science, you're going to get a lot of stuff wrong. You know, it, it, it's so much to respond to there. He's throwing up uh, what we call the conflict thesis from the 19th century, this idea that Christianity and the Bible held back progress, and uh, there's this big perpetual battle going on. That's that's utter nonsense. Um, and he's also putting particular interpretations upon some biblical passages, which I yes. recognize which passages they were as they went through that. And, uh, you know, the Bible is not real specific about a lot of the details of, say, cosmology. It's, it's rather rather general about what it says. And I think that I've written about that. That's that's a really, rather good good thing to see there. You know, many people think the earth, uh, the Bible teaches the earth is flat or that the, uh, you know, that the geo teaches geocentrism. It doesn't. It's rather, rather ambiguous about it. And what has happened is people have chosen to interpret the Bible certain ways. Like he was some of the things he was talking about there was uh, stuff that came from Thomas Aquinas, 
you know, 800 years ago, bringing in Aristotelian and Ptolemaic thinking into it. And the Roman Catholic Church ended up endorsing that. And even some of the early reformers did, as it turned out. And so when the paradigm shift happened in science uh, 500 years ago, 400 years ago, I should say, it uh, kind of caught people flat-footed. But it wasn't that what we were discovering contradicted scripture. What it did is it contradicted what people thought the Bible said this whole time. And that's the key issue. What does the Bible actually say? And it turns out it oftentimes says something very different from what most of us think it says. And I've been wrong about that myself in the past. So I can, I'm not just criticizing other people, I'm criticizing myself because I've changed my mind about some things because I had some wrong ideas. So that is the key, though. He's pointing out they that they had to reinterpret scripture. Really, you're not having to reinterpret scripture, you're having to change. Uh, a preconceived idea, your interpretation. About what Scripture says, yeah. Yes. The, the whole idea is they, they try to say that, you know, the 600, 400 years ago, uh, about 1600, shortly thereafter, with, with what we call the Galileo Affair, uh, that the uh, you know Roman Catholic Church was saying, well, you, what you're teaching about the sun, uh, earth going around the sun rather than the other way around, that, that violates what Scripture says. Scripture doesn't say that. Yeah. That's what people got from their science, by the way from Aristotle and Ptolemy, and then they turned around and said, well, it must be what the Bible says. And in fact, much of the, the, the refutation given to Galileo 400 years ago didn't come from Scripture. It came from science of the day. Uh, so he's mischaracterizing a lot of things there. <laughs> and that's a common, common mischaracterization that people give. What an interesting perspective that actually what we're correcting is we're correcting the science. We're not correcting the Scripture. Oh. The whole thing 400 years ago was a scientific dispute. It was not a biblical dispute. Um, people objected. Even, even Martin Luther, when he first heard about Copernicus uh, 100 years before that, he said this fool, uh, he didn't mention by name, wants to overturn all of astronomy. Well, yeah, he was. <laughs> and he went on to say something from Joshua about the sun standing still. But he said, first of all, overturn all of astronomy. And he was talking about Aristotelian Ptolemaic astronomy. So Luther was half right on that part. And that was the problem. People were bringing secular sources, pagan sources in this case, in, and interpreting scripture and insisting then that's what the Bible taught. And that's where they got it completely wrong. Um, so, so it really was a scientific squabble four centuries ago, not a biblical one at all. And now they've turned it around today to say, oh, they're actually having to change their interpretation of the Bible. And really, they were just simply correcting the modern science. Modern science has a long history of being wrong. And Neil deGrasse Tyson, we're still doing that. And you're wrong. Absolutely. You're yep. billions of years old. Okay. And there's a, par there's a parallel there today because now uh, I can give numerous examples of where people have interpreted Scripture in terms of the current science. And then when it changes, it leaves them kind of holding the bag there. And uh, in the case of um, uh, today, we're probably going to touch on this, uh, the Big Bang has become the dominant thought that everybody wants to now interpret Scripture. And I'm saying, folks, listen, time out. You need to consider the fact that we've been down this road a number of times, and it never <laughs> ended well when we did that. Why are you expecting it to be different this time? Because I am fantastic. The Big Bang model will not be around eventually, so it will be replaced by something else. Okay, well, that gets me to the James Webb Space Telescope because I don't know about you, I have been fascinated by yeah. some of the images coming back. Surely you are enjoying your new $10 billion space toy, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty, by the way, it was supposed to be $1 billion, but because it's a government project, it's now $10 billion, okay? Um, originally designed for that. Um, okay, I want to I talk about it because 
it is returning some really cool things. And I think there are some things that are that are making us question the Big Bang. I want to get to that. But I have watched so many videos and seen the images coming back and been blown away. I've got, this is from, I forget the name of the YouTube channel. I didn't write that down. I'm sorry. But here's what they're saying the, big, the, the James Webb is doing for us. Check this out. Sure, the Hubble can take breathtaking photos of space, but it has its limits. For instance, it hasn't allowed scientists to see the first galaxies formed after the Big Bang. Webb will change that because it will be acting like a giant time machine. It's like we have this 14 billion year old story of the universe, but we're missing that first chapter. The JWST will capture light that has been traversing the cosmos for as long as 13.5 billion years, extending our views of the universe several hundred million years earlier than the Hubble. Is that what this is doing? Was this really, did we spend $10 billion to try to see like the evidence of the Big Bang, to see the edge of the universe? Is that kind of like, tell us, give us an overview of the James Webb Space Telescope. Okay, it's a very different telescope from the Hubble Space Telescope. That's, um, they say it's a replacement, and it is in some respects. It's bigger and better, but it's optimized very differently. The Hubble Space Telescope uh, was optimized in the, well, designed and used in the what we call the optical part of the spectrum. What we can see with our eyes and a little bit in the infrared at longer wavelengths, a little into the ultraviolet at shorter wavelengths. The James Webb Space Telescope, though, is entirely in the infrared, pretty deep in the infrared, as it turns out. And the reason for that is they their primary, one of the two primary missions was to look at some of the earliest galaxies in the beginning of the universe. The idea is the Big Bang began was 13.8 billion years ago, and then maybe within a half billion years after that, uh, galaxies began forming, and they want to see those. The problem is you have the Hubble relation where the universe, the uh, great distance light is very red redshifted, shoving light that would normally be in the visible way down into the infrared. So they they optimize this for the infrared and some special things they had to do. By the way, the, the pictures you see are all false color because yeah. we can't see any of those infrared colors. They have to make up the colors, and that's fine. There's a, there's a there's an art and a science to doing that properly. So um, I don't have a quibble with that. Some people would, but I don't because I understand. I do, I do think it's that. interesting that we're seeing these images and we're like, oh my goodness, that's beautiful. And really, they've just taken the wavelengths of the infrared that we can't see and kind of shifted them down to yeah. the visible light and then played with them after that to create a beautiful image, but it still right. has the, the, Basically, I think what they're showing a lot of those really distant galaxies is what these galaxies would look like if their light were not redshifted. That's the whole point. Okay. What, what we would see with our eyes if there were not this huge redshift. And then um, that large uh, redshift corresponds to a great distance. And if you assume the constant speed of light, then that refers to what we call a look-back time. So if you look at a galaxy 13.5 billion light years away, you're looking at it as it appeared not now, but 13.5 billion years ago. Model interpretation within 300 million years of the of the Big Bang itself. So that's what they mean by seeing, you know, it's a time machine looking back into time. And uh, they want to see uh, some of the structure and some other things showing up in those very early uh, galaxies in the universe. Now, and the I Hubble couldn't do that. I I either read or watched it on a video. I don't remember which one. I've been going through so much of it over the last couple of months. The telescope is so precise in the infrared that if it were like the distance from the Earth to the moon, it could see a bumblebee in the infrared on the moon. That's how mm -hmm. precise. Is that, I mean, do you know how, I like, 
how precisely tuned is this thing? Well, I'd have to look at the numbers for that one. But yeah, it's 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 a big telescope. It's got fantastic optics. And uh, you know, the engineering on this thing was, it was incredible. Uh, they had to get it all right, and they did to make this happen. So not like the Hubble, when they launched it, they had the, they had a problem with the optics, had to fix it. They weren't going to make that mistake again. <laughs> so this this mission has been flawless so far. It's it is amazing. It took days, about a week, right, for just the thing to unfold once it got into space. Uh, and and then they there's as far as I know, they're still doing calibration stuff on it. It takes a while, you know, to really get things going. It took a while to get the cameras ready, get it cooled down. By the way, it takes a long. It has to be operating at cool, very low temperatures. That's what the sun shield is all about because. Um, uh, infrared is heat energy, so so heat radiation. So they had to get it very very cool, and that took a while. But they're still working on the calibrations of this thing. And they've got some preliminary calibrations, and that's part of what we may be talking about later on today. But the uh, they're making adjustments all the time. The shakedown is is going to take more than a year to actually get it all straightened out. But they're doing science in the meantime. Here's some of the things that they said. Here's what it's already done in just a couple of months. What you're seeing here are the so-called cosmic cliffs. This is actually a young star forming region in the Carina Nebula. This picture is basically screaming, Webb can help us find life on other planets, and we're happy to know that. Previous observations of WASP-39b from other telescopes like Hubble and Spitzer Space Telescopes revealed the presence of water vapor in the planet's atmosphere. But Webb's infrared sensitivity has now confirmed the presence of carbon dioxide on this planet. This is the first real evidence of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere of a planet outside the solar system. This image actually shows a cluster of galaxies, SMACS 0723, as it appeared 4.6 billion years ago. Webb holds the record for what appears to be the oldest galaxy ever discovered. Look how tiny and cute. Its name is Glass Z13, and it was born just 300 million years after the Big Bang. Okay, a lot of stuff in there from carbon. Can we see carbon in the atmosphere? Uh, the oldest, you know, supposedly now the oldest galaxy that we've ever seen. Uh, what are some of the discoveries that have been that have been made? And are they are, are are people taking the discovery and making a bigger deal out of it, or is it no? These are big deals. Okay, uh, well, the one the little part of the clip there dealt with um, an atmosphere of an exoplanet. Exoplanets are stars, uh, planets orbiting other stars. And that was the other main thing that the uh, James Webb Space Telescope uh, was was designed to do. One was to look at the very very high redshift of galaxies. The other was to um, look for uh, evidence of different gases in the atmospheres of some of these. They want to well, they want to find Earth-like planets, and so um, the way to do that really is to look for nitrogen, which is what they what our atmosphere is based upon, and that's one of the big goals. Right now, they haven't gotten there yet. They found water vapor. Well. That's not surprising. Uh, it turns out water is one of the most common molecules in the universe. We, we find it all over the place. The other thing is that it um, um, that they were uh, finding carbon dioxide. Again, that's not surprising. Carbon dioxide is common. If it's large enough quantities in an atmosphere of a star to be detected so readily, it tells us that it's not an Earth-like planet. You know, we're all worried today about, about carbon dioxide buildup and climate change and all that stuff. And um, that's not an Earth-like planet. It's going to be a hellish environment like Venus you're going to find underneath that. So uh, that was one of the big things we were looking at. But then they also mentioned there the other, other objective is to look at very distant galaxies. And they showed this galaxy that 
They said it was only 300 million years after uh, after the Big Bang. And that was a bit of a surprise because it wasn't that long ago that they were saying it took at least a half billion years for galaxies to form. Yet you're seeing galaxies fully formed less than that. And that that's an interesting uh, sort of development because we're seeing uh, galaxies all the way back. This one thing that I talked about, but never actually went to print with um, with this. I, I think uh, Jason Lyle actually did. You know, the other another creation astronomer. He actually uh, did go out in front of this, saying, "I think we're going to see galaxies all the way back, all the way out." And uh, I agree with that. I just wish I would have said it in print, but he did. And that's you mean, what we're before seeing. we discovered that it was true, so you could say yeah, kind of, yeah, the, yeah, "I told yeah. you so." I mean, I, I mean, I thought about it, but I never actually committed. I should have. I just, but he didn't. He he actually actually did. So that's a. Uh, Kudos to, to Jason for doing that. But yeah, we expect to see galaxies all the way out because, well, galaxies, I think, existed from the very beginning. That's that's the nature of creation, I believe. Um, we're not going to see this evolution of it were, as it were, of galaxies forming off at great distances. Many, many other surprises out there. One of the ones you didn't mention, maybe we'll get to, but I'll go ahead and mention now if it's okay. They're looking at a spectra of objects way out there. And they're finding heavier elements, you know, carbon and nitrogen and things like this, and maybe iron and so forth. Here's the deal. Um, according to Big Bang model, the universe begins with hydrogen and helium and a little bit of lithium and absolutely nothing else. Uh, most of the stuff we encounter every day, like the uh, calcium in our bones, the iron in our blood, the uh, nitrogen and oxygen carbon make up much bulk of our bodies and things we eat, carbohydrates. None of that existed in the early universe. So where did it come from? Well, they have this very elaborate theory in astronomy and astrophysics where uh, stars are, are born, they, they form, they, they, uh, they derive their energy by nuclear fusion reactions, and that produces progressively heavier and heavier elements. These stars blow up or they uh, th throw out uh, winds of, of gas, and they take some of the products of that out where it mixes with more gas to form more stars and repeat the process again and again and again. And slowly you enrich the universe in many more of the heavier elements. We call this chemical enrichment. And this obviously takes time. You got to go through multiple generations of stars. Yet at very great distances, they seem to be finding evidence from spectroscopy of these heavier elements. Why were they forming so fast? Uh, that was a big surprise as well. It's something I've been talking about for years as, as we pushed it farther and farther out. And now the, uh, the new telescope is pushing it beyond what we did before. We're finding heavier elements all the way out. Again, I think, like Jason would say, we expect to see that all the way out. And that's what we're seeing here. Okay, so that kind of goes against, it, it definitely would go against the Big Bang model because all the way out there, we should see nothing but really the hydrogen and helium and lithium at the edge of the universe, so to speak. And and we should reach an edge of galaxies at some point where, the, where galaxies are, and stars are just beginning to form. We haven't reached that point yet. Uh, Gary asks, he's one of our partners here. He says, hey, am I of the understanding, uh, or I'm of the understanding that there was no known method of determining the distance to the supposedly faraway stars? So as we talk about this, and that's <clears throat> kind of one of the things that, that, that I think has come out over and over and over and over when you think of what I hear in the videos of the James Webb Space Telescope is billions of light years away. So obviously the universe is billions of years old and then star forming regions, billions of years, star forming regions, billions of years, star forming regions. Those are the phrases that I'm hearing over and over. It's like they're, they're trying to seed that thought in as heavy as they can with the James Webb T Space Telescope. Yeah, I think the question he had uh, got more to the distances. How do we know those? And right. um, it's a it's a it's a 
worthy of a whole show or two on this one itself, but I'll briefly mention we have one direct method of finding distances. That is to measure what's called trigonometric parallax. The idea, you know, if a star is nearby and, and uh, let my eyes represent the either side of, of the Earth's orbit around the sun, if I look at it with one perspective, my thumb is in one direction, that represents a star. If I look at it on the other side of the orbit, it's a different, different, uh, different direction. So from my perspective, as I orbit around the sun every year, my, the stars seem to shift back and forth like this. And um, this technique now can give us distances, reliable distances, out to about 6,000 light years, which wow. is impressive. It used to, just a few years ago, it used to be about one hundredth of that distance. So we've come a long way. And um, that's that's only within the galaxy. That's really small inside the galaxy. To get beyond the galaxy to other galaxies, you have to use other methods that you then calibrate with this parallax method. And you, there are a number of ways of doing this, but when you finally get to the kind of distances we're talking about with the James Webb Space Telescope, you're relying upon redshift. And that's what Hubble discovered in 1929, that the greater uh, farther, farther away a galaxy is, the greater the redshift it has. And I've already mentioned this in, in, in light of why it, the James Webb Space Telescope is, is uh, optimized for, for infrared or operates in the infrared. The, um, and the thing is, there is a very strong correlation with distance. When, when, they, when you find a huge redshift, it, it does, I believe, correlate well with distance. Exactly how far away is not clear. Now, this is the, this is the little sticking point that people are missing. These, these um, large redshifts that they're reporting and hence the distances are not me yet measured in terms of spectroscopy, which is a way to do it properly. What they've done is they've taken um, the infrared colors that they see and they've used that to infer how much redshift there is. It's an estimate of how much it is without a direct measurement. And um, they've been using the, remember that talk about the calibration process? Yeah. They've been using the preliminary calibrations to do that. And just in the last few weeks, I saw a paper out there calling into question the calibration saying, maybe the calibration we have isn't right yet. And if that's the case, that's one way to solve the problems we're having. Maybe the calibration is incorrect. So watch for that correction to be addressed over the next couple of months, maybe the next year or two. Because again, as I said, it's going to take a long while to get everything calibrated. And it may be they're using the wrong calibration. Now, that's not going to tremendously change the distance of these galaxies. It's going to change them by 10%, maybe 15%. It's not going to change them by a huge amount, but it will change the, the answers that they're getting right now. And it may change the story significantly before they get there. Okay, so now that's interesting because I had a conversation with Hugh Ross, who is an individual, and you're friends with him as well, oh, yeah. who would yeah. hold to the Big Bang model and the Bible and say the Big Bang happened. And I mean, he gave me to the decimal point. We know it was 13 point, I don't remember it exactly, seven, eight, nine, six billion years ago. And we've got it. And he's like, that's how precise we know it now. And what you're saying is, uh-oh, even that number may be wrong now. They may no, have to no, change no, no, I'm not saying that. I'm, I, that's oh. not changing the Big Bang age. What I'm saying is the individual galaxies are seeing at tremendous distance. We may not know the distances that well. It's based upon an inferred redshift. And until they actually measure the redshift, if they indeed they can, you're not going to know for sure that the redshift you have is correct. So okay. that, it's not really going to change the age of the Big Bang, I don't think. It's going to change the distance and hence the look back time that some of these galaxies have. Now, man, I've only got a couple more minutes with uh, YouTube and with <laughs> Facebook. Um, hey, okay. A pastor, this is this is interesting to me. I watched a sermon literally just a couple of weeks ago 
with a pastor who was, uh, his name is Joel Thomas. He's talking about the Big Bang model as though it's true. And he's using that from Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, this, this beginning is not just the beginning of time. It, it's just the beginning of our world. I want you to think about it this way. Figuratively, if we were going to have a conversation, this is the way Moses would say, hey, way back when, that's kind of what he means by in the beginning. Hey, way back sort of in the beginning of everything that you can see. And, and you got to remember, they didn't have scientific models. They didn't know about the universe. They didn't know about galaxies. They didn't know any of this stuff. They didn't know the earth was round. They just saw the sky, the land, and the sea, and that's it. It's like, okay, so everything you can see, way back at the beginning of everything you can see when you look up and you look out. That's what Moses is saying. So I got to get into that, and he actually goes on, and he talks about um, uh, some, some other things in there, that, that, and he explains the whole Big Bang model. Anyway, we'll have to talk about that uh, after, after this break. I, I, I wish Facebook and YouTube, I wish you guys could stay on, but we have another half of the show that we do uh, that's only for our partners. So if you want to enjoy all of our conversations, uh, past, present, and future, you can come to creationtoday.org and just partner with us. And your, your partnership is just helping us share the gospel through the creation message around the world. And you can do that for whatever you want, any kind of partnership you want to make. And then you can have access to all of the shows. We welcome you into the Creation Today community if you head on over to creationtoday.org. Next week, I am looking forward to next week's show. If God is love, what about, oh my goodness, there are so many things that people use today to try to argue against God that I think if you look at it properly, and we're going to do that with Dr. Frank Sherwin at the Institute for Creation Research, you can actually turn that right on its head and only God and only creation and only sin in a, in, a, in a perfect world can bring about a satisfactory answer. We're going to look at that next week. Well, thank you guys for joining me. I uh, look forward to seeing you guys next week at noon Central Time right here on your platform. Well, Dr. Faulkner, uh, this Pastor Joel Thomas. Thank you for uh, joining us for this engaging conversation. To view this and many more conversations in their entirety, we invite you to partner with us at creationtoday.org partner.